And now, um, when our girls were little, uh, one of the things they loved to do was to put on plays for us, these sort of drama sketches. Uh, they'd put them on if we let them. Um, because when they did, you know, you know, you know what it's like, parents, you know, they, they get all dressed up and uh, they'd put on Sue's shoes or totter around in those or put on one of my coats. Um, let's just say it wasn't always easy to work out what the plot of the play was. So we would say, yeah, we will come and watch, but only if you promise that it has a beginning, a middle and an end and most definitely an end. Okay, because, I mean, those are the constituents of a great story, aren't they? A beginning and a middle and an end. That's a framework. But if an author is writing an epic, okay, sometimes they will also give you a prequel. All of those critical details, all that critical stuff that went on before the story even begins to help you understand what is going on in the middle. Because the middle of stories can get confusing, can't it? It can get a bit complicated. And you're wondering, you know, you're reading this story or you're or watching a, a film, and you're thinking, is he a goodie or a baddie? Why did she do that? Why did she not do that? Why are they responding the way they are responding? And it can get confusing. And the prequel helps you to understand, OK, that's why that's why that is happening. That's why they're behaving that, that way. That is what is going on. And today is the first Sunday of Advent, okay? this period when, as a church, we give ourselves to remembering the first coming of Jesus, how he came in humility as a baby, the beginning of the great drama of the gospel. But traditionally, the church has also taken Advent as an opportunity to reflect on Jesus' second coming, to look forward and not just back to the time when he would come again, not in humility, but in glory, not as a baby, but as judge and king. The beginning of the story and the end of the story. But if that's what Advent gives us, the beginning and the end, what about the middle? Because that's where you come in, isn't it? That's where I come in in the middle, between these two comings. That's a bit that we get caught up in. But as I said, the middle of the story is where stuff can get confusing. And if you're here this morning and you're not uh, yet a Christian, you're also in this middle bit. Even if you don't recognize that, you're, you're in this middle bit. And maybe for you, it's about thinking, well, what is this Christian faith even about? That's confusing. Or if you are a Christian, and you're also in this uh, middle bit, you could be thinking, okay, but if this is the middle of the story, this great story, why is this stuff happening to me? If, if this is supposed to be so great, this great drama of salvation, why am I experiencing it? Why is my life the way it is at the moment? How does this fit into the story? Well, that is why this Advent, we're going to, spend some time and look back at the prequel to Advent. We're going to go back to the centuries and even millennia before Jesus was born and to the promises, to some of the promises that God made to certain individuals, promises that help us understand that's what God is up to. That's what God's doing in this period. That's what he's doing in my life now. That's what he was up to at Bethlehem 
at the beginning and the first coming of Jesus. That's what he's up to in this middle period, this bit where we are caught up with, and that's what he will be up to at the end when Jesus returns. Though as C.S. Lewis puts it, that end is really just going to be a new beginning. Chapter 1, he says, of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Okay, we're going to start today by looking at the promise to Eve. Okay, first point then, the eldest, sorry, the oldest trick in the book. The oldest trick in the book. Now, unlike, uh, I think, just about any other ancient creation account, the Bible does not begin with the gods emerging out of a primordial chaos. It doesn't begin, as the others do, with the gods fighting or having sex with each other. It begins, the Bible begins, with a sovereign God, one God, who is supreme over everything, sovereign over everything. And he literally speaks the universe into being from nothing. And he does so through this series, through the beauty of binaries, heaven and earth, light and dark, day and night, sun and moon, land and sea, plants bearing seed and trees bearing fruit, fish and birds, earth and animals one binary after another. But then comes the crowning beauty, the crowning binary of creation. As God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God makes the first man, Adam, from the dust of the earth, breathes life into him and places him in a garden for him to tend as his representative. And then he makes the first woman from the man and gives her to him as his helper in that work. And when Adam first sees her, he bursts into the very first love song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But their happiness does not last long, does it? As we had read to us by Annalisa from Genesis 3, an intruder enters the garden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. Now if you watch um, crime thrillers, uh, sometimes it can take a bit of time to work out who the baddie is, can't it? Work out their identity. Work out who the, who the culprit really is. Who is that? And so it's the same here. Who is the serpent? Is he just a serpent? Or is he more than a serpent? Well, by the end of the story, by the end of the Bible, there is no doubt. Because in the book of Revelation, his mask is removed. And he is the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And in the Bible, evil is not an abstract concept. Evil is real and it is personal. 
And maybe, you know, if you're not yet a Christian, or maybe, if, you know, even if you are, maybe you go, come on, you can't, you can't really believe in a personal devil. Okay, if that is you, I would just ask you to consider what makes more sense of what you see going on in the world at the moment? Even in our own time, what makes more sense of what is going on in the world at the moment? What the world tells you is true, that deep down we're all fundamentally good? Or what the Bible says? No, there is, evil is very real, and it is very personal, and it is very deceptive. I just get you to reflect. Look, what makes more sense of the world? What you're told out there or what the Bible tells you? And it does not take long for this serpent to get down to business. Verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And he begins to get her to cast doubt on the goodness of God. And to begin to think, hey, look, living within God's bounds, the bounds that God has set, that's not your best. You can do better than that. And so when the woman replies that God had told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if they do, they will die, the serpent replies, verses 4 and 5, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. How do you think that sounded to Eve? Do you think that sounds like the voice of evil to Eve? Or do you think it sounds like the voice of freedom? The voice of self-fulfillment, of Eve coming into everything that she was always meant to be. Or the voice of justice, because clearly God has been keeping from her what is rightly hers. And as one commentator puts it, that offer to be like God, to take your life, your future, your identity, even your morality and the person you want to be, and choose to be, the offer to take that into your own hands, he says, is intoxicating. It remains intoxicating, doesn't it? You be you. Whatever makes you happy is what's right for you. Don't let anyone else tell you how you should live or who you should be. But of course, what Genesis 3 tells us is that that offer is the oldest lie in the book. Because it tells you, you can be like God. You can take all the weight of deciding life and meaning and morality. You can take all of that into your own hands and take it upon yourself. And if you do, life will be great. But the, tr the truth then and now is very different. You see, the serpent told them, eat the fruit and your eyes will be opened. And he was right. He was not lying there. Their eyes were opened, but not to beauty and not to light, but to shame and to guilt. And for the first time, they experience this profound alienation, an alienation from each other as they try and cover up. They're experiencing shame and embarrassment for the first time. They hide themselves from each other and a profound alienation from God as they hide from him. And in our own day, we are told, hey, define your own identity. Decide your own morality and life will be great. 
But as I said before, just look at the data. Just look at the facts. Just look at the, the data on loneliness and feelings of worthlessness or feelings of being dissatisfied with life or feeling hopeless about the future. Look at the figures on mental health and depression and self-harm and medication use. And all of the graphs are going up, some to staggering degrees. Now, is that the case for everyone? No. But it is the case for enough people, and the trends are clear enough that even the most hardened sceptic should stop and think, man, this is not working. But Genesis would say, why does that surprise you? It's the oldest lie in the book. You cannot hope to carry the weight of being God and think that everything will turn out fine. You can't bear that weight. Now, it would be nice to imagine, maybe especially if you're a guy, that with his wife being deceived by a serpent, Adam would ride to the rescue like a hero. Sadly, verse 6 she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the helper does not help, and the hero falls at the very first challenge. But what the Bible tells us is that a hero will come, and come from the woman. Second point then, the promise made. Oldest trick in the book and the promise made. And having walked into the garden, God addresses the serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so strictly speaking, this is, um, this is less of a promise to Eve and more of a threat, more of a judgment passed, more of a sentence to be executed on the serpent, that one day from the woman whom the serpent has just tried to recruit as an ally against God, one day there is going to come one who will crush the serpent's head. And that, says Derek Kidner, who is an Old Testament scholar, that is the first glimmer of the gospel, that out of all of this wreckage, out of all of the shame, out of all of the guilt, out of all of the hiding, out of all of the darkness, God is going to raise up a rescuer. So it is a promise to Eve. Now in politics and in the press, even again recently in our own day, conflicts are often framed as the battle between good and evil. And you had better support the good, lest evil triumph. The Bible gives a different message. Because the battle is not between equal and opposing forces where the outcome is somehow in doubt. The Bible says there is no doubt about the outcome. The head of the serpent will be crushed. And yet... It is going to be costly. Firstly, verse 15 again. There will be enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And right down to today, history tells us how women and girls have suffered at the hands of evil. I would say disproportionately so. How they have suffered generally at the hands of evil. 
But when it comes to the women who are going to bear the line, the seed line of the one who is going to come and crush the serpent's head, that evil becomes very specific. As we were talking about in class this morning, when Matthew sits down to write his gospel, before he tells us anything about the events surrounding Jesus' birth, he gives us Jesus' genealogy. This long list of Jesus' male ancestors from Abraham to Joseph. And in that list, four names stand out. Why? Because they're women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And each of those women suffered, whether that was sexual abuse or the death of a loved one or being treated as a racial outsider. And if you had interviewed any of those women and they had told you, you know, I have personally experienced evil and suffering. I have experienced that firsthand. If you knew their stories, if you know their stories, you would agree with them. You would not argue with them. They have known firsthand the enmity of their mortal enemy. And yet... From one generation to the next, that seed was passed down and the promise was being kept because it wasn't just going to be costly for the women. Genesis 3.15 again. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Third point then, the promise kept. Now, I used to work on a neonatal unit in an area of, uh, which had pockets of significant socioeconomic deprivation. And so our nurses, they were wonderful and feisty women, okay, because they had to be, okay, they faced just about everything. They were amazing Portsmouth women. But occasionally, when the parents of a newborn baby were asked what they wanted to name him or her, and they said the name, the nurse in charge would go, no. No, you are not naming him that. Go away. Go away, and you can come back when you have come up with a sensible name. (laughs) And let's just say they had the presence and the authority to get away with that. Okay, but if even to them names carried weight, they did not carry even to them the weight that names carried in ancient Judea. Because having given us Jesus' genealogy, Matthew tells us, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, and he recounts how Joseph was on the verge of divorcing his pregnant fiancée Mary, because he knows he is not the father of this child, until an angel appears to him in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now in Romeo and Juliet, uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Juliet asks, what's in a name? And the answer she's looking for is nothing. Nothing's in a name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. In other words, it doesn't matter what surname Romeo carries. It doesn't matter what family he's from. What matters is that I love him. What's in a name? Nothing's in a name. 
When it comes to Jesus, Matthew would answer, what's in a name? Everything. Because the name Jesus means the Lord saves, the Lord rescues. Which is why the angel says, you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In other words, Joseph, he is the one who is going to be the rescuer. He's the one who's going to be the hero. He's the one who is going to come and crush the serpent's head. Which is why when the angel says to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you should call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Every other king, every other kingdom had fallen before evil. And the angel is saying, but not your son, Mary. Your son is not going to fall. His throne will never fall. Instead, evil and the serpent are going to fall before him. In the words of that wonderful old hymn, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. And so the promise to Eve tells you what is going on at the beginning of the great story of Advent. The serpent slayer has been born. The serpent slayer has been born and born to a woman, born to the Virgin Mary. But of course, a serpent has no intention of taking any of this lying down. King Herod hears of the birth of the true king and he orders the massacre of every male child under the age of two in and around Bethlehem. What is that? Is that just the actions of a despot trying to stamp out opposition? Sure. It's something much darker, isn't it? It is something more evil even than that. It is the attempt by the serpent to crush the seed of the woman before that seed crushes him. And when after his baptism, Jesus begins his ministry, where does he go? First place, where does he go? He goes to the wilderness, to the desert. Why? Because the garden has become a desert. And like Adam and Eve, he too was tempted by Satan, tempted to doubt God's word, tempted to pursue his own ends, tempted to worship the creature rather than the creator. But where they failed, Jesus triumphs and his foot is poised over the head of the serpent. And the Gospels tell us how throughout his ministry, Jesus freed people from the power of darkness and he delivered them from demonic oppression. And they tell us how he left them clothed and in their right minds. As Jesus said, the thief, Satan, the serpent, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly.
And yet, lingering in the background, hiding in the shadows, are those words, and you will bruise his heel. Because the life that Jesus offers is going to come at a cost. And the night, when he, the night comes when he experiences evil, the evil of betrayal by a close friend, the night when he is arrested in another garden, and he says to those who take him, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And at his trial, the evil of injustice and the evil of physical brutality is turned upon him. And he is crucified on a Roman cross as a criminal. And it looks as if the serpent has won, that he has crushed the seed of the woman before the seed could crush him. That's why those two disciples on the road to Emmaus on that first Easter Sunday morning said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to come and slay the serpent. But the serpent has slayed him. What they don't know is that it is Jesus, risen from the dead, who they are speaking to. What they hadn't realized is that in the words of Isaiah the prophet, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that by his wounds, by his being bruised, we are healed. That it was precisely at the moment when the serpent thought he had won, that the serpent was being crushed. That through Jesus' death in our place for our sin, through his resurrection from the dead, the power of sin and death and therefore of Satan was broken. Paul writes these stunning words. At the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, the powers of darkness, and he put them in this moment when he is being put to open and public shame. What is really going on is he is putting them to open and public shame by triumphing over them. It's why John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In the words of Joy to the World, that wonderful Christmas carol, which we'll be singing next Sunday evening, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Which is where you come in, in the middle of the story. Last point then, the promise lived. The promise made, the promise kept, the promise lived. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So one day, every knee and every crushed head 
will bow before him. But we live in the in-between times. We live in the middle of the story, the bit where it gets confusing. And as you do, in one form or another, you will experience the ongoing enmity of evil. It could just be plain old temptation. And the oldest lie in the book, that life will be great if you live the way you want to live, if you do this thing that you know that you shouldn't do or decide for yourself what is right and wrong. Remember what John wrote. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And if you look at the context of that, John is talking about our personal sin. Don't give yourself to that stuff. The reason this, don't give yourself to sin. Don't give yourself to thinking you're, you are God. Don't th give yourself to thinking that you can decide your own morality. The reason the Son of God appeared was to free you from that. So instead, remember the promise to Eve that Christ was born to crush the lies of the serpent and choose life and light instead of darkness. Or maybe you look at your past or the sin of your present and you know that you have been deceived and you're bearing the consequences of that. It promised you so much, but now look. And Satan comes accusing you, reminding you of just how guilty you are. What does this tell you? Don't listen to him. Listen to the promise to Eve. Listen to Jesus telling you, I have carried your sin so you don't have to. I have borne your guilt and your shame so that you can have my righteousness and I have crushed your accuser under my foot. Or maybe because of your past, you know the reality of the powers of darkness and you know that only too well. And at times, maybe even it feels like those powers are coming for you again. What does this tell you? Do not fear. Christ has conquered and you are absolutely safe in his hands. Those powers have absolutely no claim on you. His victory is your victory. Or maybe you look at our world or even your life and you feel like darkness is winning and you feel hopeless and useless. Maybe even you experience days where waves of despair just crash upon you. What does this tell you? It tells you don't despair. Instead, this advent, pull open the door to the stable and look in the manger and see that the serpent slayer has been born. The outcome is certain. Listen to what Paul writes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This Advent, you can know that your greatest enemies, the principalities and powers of darkness, Satan, sin and death, your guilt and shame, they have all been defeated. The offspring of the woman has come. The promise to Eve has been kept and nothing can separate you from his love. And so as Paul writes to the church in Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray.